Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi friends, welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. Thank you again for joining us for a, what I think is going to be a great conversation. My name is Don Payne, I'm your host. It's terrifying and at the same time beneficial to see ourselves through the, the eyes of others. Uh, over the past decade, at least, American evangelical Christians have undergone perhaps more public scrutiny than ever before, in large part because of how the evangelical movement in the U.S. has been so politicized. So now, maybe as much or more than ever, it's time for a good hard look at ourselves through the eyes of others. And that's where the perspectives of others can help us because we don't always see uh, what we need to see. When we look in a mirror, we tend to see what we've always seen or what we want to see. So it's even more helpful to have those external perspectives, particularly of people who are not enemies, but friends who will tell us the truth. Our guest uh, in this episode is Dr. Constantine Campbell, an Australian New Testament scholar who taught for some years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the Chicago area. He currently serves as professor and associate research director at Sydney College of Divinity in Sydney, Australia. Khan has authored 16 books, including Paul and Union with Christ, which was the 2014 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Biblical Studies. And so he knows the evangelical faith intimately, and he also knows the American evangelical scene from the inside. Uh, Khan, welcome. Welcome to Engage 360. Thank you, Don. It's great to be here. We're really uh, appreciative of you taking time in what for you is the morning, for us the afternoon. Um, but it's great to be able to speak across continents so so clearly. Uh, Khan has also uh, authored very recently, this year, 2023, from Zondervan, the book Jesus Versus Evangelicals, uh, which is a foreboding title, but, title, but certainly grabs attention. Um, either either <laughs> you or Zondervan knew what they were doing in titling the book. Uh, so in this, uh, this recent publication, Khan offers a kind of analysis that we in the U.S. need to take very seriously if we want our commitment to Jesus Christ not to be hijacked by ideologies that reflect cultural values more than biblical commitments. Uh, Khan, thanks again for joining us, and would you maybe first give us a little bit of background on why you wrote this book and, and maybe your overall argument in the book? Mm, sure, Don. Uh, well, thanks again for your interest in the book uh, and for for taking such a, a humble stance at something that might be towards something that might be a difficult read uh, for some. But the book really grows out of being a biblical scholar and teaching in seminary while grappling personally and culturally with what you know I've observed over the years within evangelicalism, both in my own context here in Australia, but also, and in particular, in the US context. As I mentioned in the book, uh, many of my critiques are things that I would just casually talk about with with students in class or when we're talking about, you know, okay, what does the text of the Bible say about this issue? Uh, how do we put these things together theologically? And then what do we see happening in the church and in our experiences? And so, yes, a lot of that is anecdotal, but also at a broader 
perception level? How are the actions of evangelicals being perceived by the wider public? And, and how well do those two things match up? And uh, I think I think it's true to say, and, and as the, uh, the back cover claims, American evangelicalism is at a crisis point. That might seem incendiary language, but it's something that I truly believe because in particular, the, the, the crisis has been has sort of come to a head through this, I perceive, extreme use of political power in order to push forward a Christian agenda. And, and I think uh, theologically, Christianly, biblically, there are all sorts of problems with that. But the biggest problem for the world outside is this perception that evangelicals are interested in power, um, are interested in getting their own way, are interested in dominating groups that disagree with them or enforcing their views on others. And uh, this is really doing great damage to the witness uh, of the church to Christ, who actually taught that we are to not only love our neighbours, but love our enemies and to lay ourselves down um, and that the the cross of Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is the power of God. So the, the power of God operates through weakness, which overturns worldly power structures. So I think that the crisis, as, as I mentioned, the crisis has been brought about by this commitment to a particular way of trying to promote Christ in the world, which is through political power. And um, there's a big problem with that. Yeah. You set the stage in your book by referring, as as many do these days, to David Bebbington's quadrilateral of factors that, in his mind, define evangelicalism, uh, biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. And you speak to each of those in your book, but I'm curious to hear from you a little bit more about the biblicism factor, because mm-hmm. if, if anything, we evangelicals certainly want to think of ourselves as drawing our beliefs and our commitments from the Bible. So what do you think has gone wrong or gone sideways with the common evangelical notions of biblicism? Uh, yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think for my myself, my evangelical heritage, the biblicism is arguably the most important part because if yeah, every, everything Bible, grows out of that, right? Exactly. All our theology, all our, you know, everything, at least it ought to. And this is where the critique comes in, I think, because there is a difference between uh, what we might say is our commitment to the authority of the Bible and our actual practice. And, and that expresses itself in a range of ways where we think we, might, we may find ourselves operating or behaving in ways that are contrary to the teaching of the Bible. But even more difficult to detect than that is that in actual fact, evangelicals and, and everyone really who reads the Bible comes to the Bible with a set of assumptions and you might even say uh, a hermeneutic grid. So a way of reading the text that shapes how we understand the text. Right. And what I try to suggest in the book is that the highest authority for evangelicals is not actually the Bible, but an evangelical way of reading the Bible. And that's an important distinction. You mean at least in a functional sense? In a functional sense. Yes. So we would certainly say, you know, the, the Bible is our highest authority in matters of faith and life and conduct. But in in practice, in function, yeah. it, we come to it with a, a way of reading the text that yeah. 
often often confirms what we already think about yeah. the text. Yeah, operationally, something quite different is going on than what we yeah. what we say or what we think we believe, even. Huh. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm I'm curious. Um, do Do you think there is something inherent to evangelicalism that um, makes makes us susceptible to the phenomena you're talking about, even though now, right now we're talking about an American version of that. I wonder what mm -hmm. might evangelicals anywhere in the world need to be wary of because of what we believe and how we believe it. Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't think actually there's something inherently problematic with evangelicalism that, that sort of, you know, wherever you put it, in the world, it's going to end up a certain way. I think you can see that British evangelicalism differs from American evangelicalism, oh, yeah. which differs from Australian evangelicalism. And they have certain things in common um, so that they can still share the term evangelical, but they're, they're quite different in their attitudes with engagement with culture, engagement with political power, uh, and even you know how the Bible is handled, preaching, all these sorts of things. So it's always going to be a mix, I think, of how people are reading the Bible and their own culture. And that's unavoidable. And in, and in fact, in some ways, it's good because the gospel needs to communicate to every culture. And so, right, right. you know, you, you, want, you want to bring your culture in a way to the text. But also, I think we need to do that in a way that understands <laughs> that you are bringing your culture to the text and that, that, that actually the text might challenge your culture in certain ways. Uh, and certainly challenge your preconceived notions. Uh, what we tend to do, and, and I think all evangelicals are, are, are able to fall into this. I'm not saying all evangelicals do, but all evangelicals are able to baptize what we already think by using the Bible. Um, that's not a uniquely evangelical thing, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think, I think other types of Christians can do that as well, but the Bible is not there for us to baptize, you know, what we wanted to say the bible is actually there for for our instruction and to correct our way of thinking about god and ourselves and the world it's struck me for some years now that even though we as evangelicals um i'll use this word we pride ourselves i hope that's not inappropriate but we pride ourselves in having a high view of scripture and yet what you're describing and some of the ways we use the bible functionally is actually a low view of scripture to, mm. to, to make the Bible do what I, I want it to do is is operationally a very low view of Scripture, which would be um, quite, I, quite bracing, I think, for many evangelicals to hear. <laughs> I absolutely agree, and I think uh, many evangelicals would disagree till they're blue in the face that that's what they're doing, or at least, <laughs> right. um, you know, at least would deny the charge. But but in effect, like in, a pra in practice, operationally, as you put it, that's often what we do. And, and I think we need, myself included, um, we need to be on guard about that and actually have a position of a posture of humility that is open to what God is saying in the scriptures mm -hmm. rather than I already know what it's saying and it's saying what I want it to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because clearly, because clearly it says what I think it ought to say. Uh, yeah. Con, let me, let's um, focus on maybe a couple of chapters, a couple of key chapters in your book. Uh, chapter four is on what you call tribalism. Uh, mm. Tell us first how you're using that term. 
Yeah. Well, I think actually this is probably the heart of, of the book um, from my perspective. I, I, um, I'm using tribalism in a, in a negative sense, understanding that it, it doesn't always, tribes aren't by their nature negative, but tribalism is generally used in that sense, in a negative sense, where we're defining ourselves against each other, other tribes, um, and the tribal identity is being used as, as an expression of power. Okay. So the, the key leaders of the tribe are able to, whether it's intentional or not, but they're able to, I guess, encourage is a polite, gentle way of saying it, other members of the tribe to toe the line on certain issues or to follow the leader or uh, whatever it might be, because the threat of being kicked out of the tribe or being pushed to the edge of the tribe is is quite threatening. Um, and people want to belong. People are often afraid of the idea of being rejected by their own tribe. And so it is a way of, of, way of like firming up the boundaries, um, making sure we're all singing from the same song sheet, you know, and, and making sure in some uh, unfortunate circumstances, making sure that we're not overly critical of, of leaders who, when they actually ought to be critiqued because of fear of the tribe. Okay. Okay. Now in that chapter, you use some phrasing, I think you call it flattening the biblical text. What mm. do you mean by that? Say more about that. Yeah. Um, so this is where the biblicism idea and the tribalism idea come together. I think, um, one of Bevington's other elements in the quadrilateral is the crucicentrism, as you mentioned. Now, evangelicals historically have always been really focused on the cross of Jesus, his atoning right. death for us. And in particular, a, a certain interpretation of that death, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned in the book, I think it's totally appropriate that Christ's death is regarded as central. And, and I believe that penal substitutionary atonement is a biblical idea. Yeah, that's a but, thing. It's the thing. It's in there. I think it's fairly clear, even though some scholars deny that it exists, but I think it, it does exist there in the text. Um, however, it's not the only interpretation of the cross. Uh, and what evangelicals tend to do, and, and I know this is partly out of my anecdotal observations, but also you can find it in a number of books and you, you can find it. I think anyone who knows evangelical culture will recognize this um, characterization that we tend to zero in on that interpretation of the cross uh, every time we talk about the cross of Jesus or pretty much every time. And that causes us to ignore other things that the Bible also says about the death of Jesus. Now the death of Jesus is just one example. It's a crucial one, uh, excuse the pun, because, um, because about crucicentrism it's so central to evangelicals yeah, sure. theology and way of reading the bible but we do that where you, you sort of find in the text again what you wanted to say is like ah oh, that sounds like psa so i'll zoom in on that and actually ignore what the text is about or other details in the text that actually in some cases might be the main point of a particular pericope or paragraph in the text um, but we we miss those things because we're sort of blinded by an evangelical preference, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. How does this discussion help help us clarify and refocus our attention on the gospel? Because if I'm if I'm mm -hmm. hearing you correctly, even though we'll use you know a lot of the right gospel language in our 
our mm-hmm. conversations, um, if we're only seeing the gospel through, you know, a one one lens, one theological lens in mm-hmm. Scripture, and and mm-hmm. not all of them, mm-hmm. then that's I mean that's clearly going to end up in a sort of truncated gospel. But I I want to hear your thoughts on how um, how becoming aware of tribalism and its intersection with biblicism, how that how that conversation can help us clarify our focus on the gospel. What does that do to our understanding of the gospel? Yeah, um, excellent question, Don. I think a key problem with a sort of truncated gospel or a gospel that only focuses on penal substitutionary atonement is it reinforces our Western individualism that says mm. Jesus died for me for my sins so that I can be right with God. And that also means that sin, when we think about sin, it's personal, it's individualistic, it's just about me and my failures. Now, those things are biblical ideas because sin is personal. It is individualistic. But there's also a wider uh, concept of what sin is in in the Bible, including um, systems or worldly powers um, that are described as sin or sin with a capital S, which is beyond just, just me and my personal failures. And now if you only see the gospel as being about me and Jesus dying for my sin, then one of the unfortunate outworkings of that is uh, evangelicals can say, look, the most important message we have for the world is Jesus died for my sins, which means he also died for your sins. And and that's the thing I'm really going to focus on, that you make sure you receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, I want to say that's a good message, and people need to hear that message. But it is a limitation of the Bible's concern, because the Bible also says that Jesus in his death and resurrection overthrew the forces of evil, disarmed the powers and authorities, Colossians 2.15. Um, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you, you see this picture of people before they come to Christ under the oppression of the spirit of the power of the air, um, the, the evil one, and, and uh, people are walking in the ways of the world and, and under the influence of this spiritual, oppressive spiritual domain. And one of the things that the gospel does is it overthrows um, those powers and sets captives free from captivity to capital S sin. Yeah. Um, so and so, so it's kind of a one dimensional gospel. It's, it's one dimensional. It's, it's, it's too, it's too focused on the individual. And I think what it means is because in America, I'm aware that there are these debates about, you know, does the gospel or should Christians be concerned about systems, um, you know, that arguably oppress people or cultural forces. And, and the problem with the, me and my sins version of the gospel is it's sort of like, well, that doesn't really matter. That's temporary. That's earthly. What you really need is to be saved from your sins and reconciled with God. But it actually, that view ignores the very real concern that the Bible has for justice, social justice, um, community welfare, and releasing people from oppression. Um, and besides, besides the issue of not understanding, of Jesus affects those issues. The whole Old Testament is concerned with it. You see a God who's concerned for the, the widows and the orphans, um, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed. God has a heart for the weak. And one of the ways that we don't read the whole Bible 
is that we we think that uh, if you're if you're concerned about social issues, you're a liberal, or you're on the left, and you're not really a Christian, and that's to my mind that's ridiculous. I'm like, have you read the Bible? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the whole so, thing. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like that would um, that would also well not 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 also it would as you indicated. Um, cause our understanding of the gospel to miss, to overlook much of the effect of, of what Christ did to to deal with sin. It, it just only right. gets at a little, no, I shouldn't say a little, but but one part of that, which is, you know, my my sins, as you said, yeah. my, you know, my failures. But that's um, right. Not the not the capital S. Yeah. I love the way you put that. The you know, sin, the thing of sin. Hey, while mm-hmm. we're talking about sin and sins, you know, everybody's favorite subject, um, your, your very next cha- chapter five, is, you call it, I think, acceptable sins. And I, I yeah. really appreciated the way in that chapter you kind of named the pick and choose character of, of a lot of evangelical theology and what, how we, I think you use the term waiting. We weight sins differently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What? Why do end up, why do you think any of us end up doing that selectively weighting sins differently and I and I'm going to as, assume that that probably happens almost everywhere but we in the yeah. U.S. certainly have our in U.S. evangelicalism we certainly have our our version of that but why do we end up doing that I can't claim to have an answer to that um, I think it must be a, a mix of uh, both cultural priorities, but also standing against culture on certain issues. So it's an interesting thing because I, I sort of say, well, yeah, we've waiting, we weight sexual sin as as being quite heavy compared to other sins that we tend to excuse, like pride, in particular pride, yeah, and its various expressions like arrogance and and, and dominance and those sorts of things. Um, now you could argue that sexual uh, sexual immorality and pride are both in the culture obviously but one we've chosen to oppose and the other we've chosen to adopt <laughs> now it's yeah, not that anyone curious. would i think say yeah it's not i think that anyone would say oh we think pride is okay no you know of course you're going to say no pride is you know um obviously not okay but but in practice again the way it works out in in reality is that we tend to excuse sins like pride and arrogance and bullying and greed but uh, sexual sins we we really have a low tolerance for so um i I, you know i can't claim to know why we balance that um but what i want to say is that the balance is wrong (laughs) and um I, i sort of cheekily refer to pride as the most biblical sin um, because if you tra- trace through the Bible, <laughs> yeah. it's it is a central, centrally important sin that affects everything else. Most importantly, your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. I was very impressed at the at the considerable yeah. list of biblical examples and indictments that you put together in one place in that chapter against pride, arrogance, mm-hmm. hubris. Uh, to see that mm-hmm. all in one place certainly does make the case. Wh- where do you think we go from here with everything that you've observed about evangelicalism, particularly in the American context? Wh- where, where, do, where do we go? What, 
What what signals of hope are there, if you see any? Well, first of all, I mean, obviously, to offer a, a critique of evangelicalism, it's going to be sweeping and broad and general. Right. And I, I tried at many points to say this is it's not not fair for many individuals, and and there are many counterexamples here and there, and, and so on and so forth. So there are plenty of signs of hope when you when you dig in and and you see oh no there are christian leaders who are faithful and humble and and loving servant-hearted people of course there are alongside those who are not like that um of course there are many churches that are pictures of of health and loving community uh and mission um of course there are plenty of examples um but as a whole um i think what i would humbly suggest is a, again a, a posture of humility that says you know maybe we are of course a little bit or a lot um, maybe the scriptures do have something to say to us that we've been ignoring or missing maybe we do need to listen to people who have a different perspective on things to check our own perspective so I'm not sort of saying, hey, you need to give up everything you hold dear and, you know, become a Roman Catholic or, or Greek Orthodox or, or an atheist or anything like that. Um, I'm just simply saying if evangelicalism wants to refresh, and I think it is in need of refreshing, the first point is to say instead of just like slamming the door on what I'm saying or what others like me are saying and saying, oh, you know, you're just this or that or um, dismiss for whatever reason, but be, be open. And I know it's difficult because I know if someone has a problem with me personally, you know, I want to be open to that, but also at the same time, I, I feel threatened by that and um, I will naturally be defensive. So it's difficult to do. I acknowledge that, but I also think it's a very Christian thing to do. Uh, the Christian gospel says that we are flawed human beings. That's a presumption of the gospel. If we believe the gospel, then we need to be able to say, okay, I know that I'm flawed and that may well affect the way that I'm understanding who God is or, or might affect the way that I'm interacting with politics or community or my neighbor. And I need to be open to correction and through the spirit's work in our lives. Um, I think Jesus offers a correction for me and for my American brothers and sisters in Christ. That's well put. You mentioned a few moments ago, uh, some of the differences between evangelicalism in different parts of the world. Um, you, you named mm -hmm. Australia and the UK having studied in the UK, I picked up on some of that in, in my time there. But what, what are perhaps some examples of distinctives of evangelicalism in other parts of the world that you think would, would be instructive and helpful for American evangelicals to be aware of? Mm. Well, I suppose I, I obviously have uh, most familiarity with the Australian evangelical scene, but I think it um, by extension with the, the British evangelical scene. Um, one of the ways that British evangelicalism had a deep impact on Australian evangelicalism is uh, through what I would describe as a kind of John Stott 
way of teaching the Bible. And now Stott was an expositor, so he would work through the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, and then chapter 2, and then chapter 3, and chapter yeah. 4. Yeah. And this kind of expository preaching, it does a couple of things. First, it makes it difficult to skip parts of the Bible that you don't like yeah. or that you find difficult. Because if you're just working chapter by chapter, you're going to see things. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you have a diet of mostly topical preaching, uh, where you say, today we're going to talk about money or something, you can pick and choose things from the Bible and uh, you can, this is one of the ways that you can make it say things that on balance might misrepresent the overall teaching of the Bible. But expository preaching, if you keep working through books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, Gospels and letters, prophets and history and wisdom, you're going to come across the rich and varied teaching of the Bible. And, and I actually think that just a, a practical wisdom, if you like, of how to preach and how to read the Bible dramatically affects so much in the Australian and British evangelical scenes. Hmm. The, the other advantage of it is that it teaches people to read the Bible because what you do, and I experienced this for myself, but I've seen it countless other times, as you see a really good expositor handling the text of the Bible, working through sentence by sentence, you know, what is the text saying or wrestling with what it's saying? It teaches the hearers how to do that for themselves. And so when you go home and you read the Bible for yourself or with your spouse or with your children or with your Bible study group, you actually have in, inherited these Bible reading skills because you've heard the preacher handle the text that way. I, yeah, and I really think that's a key, key difference that shapes um, the way those different cultures handle the Bible um, and, and therefore what they look like as Christian communities. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. Thank you. Uh, we're going to wrap it up now, but I want to give you a chance to say a little word about some of the other things you have going on. You have a video series of some sort on, on Paul. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe your, your website where listeners can learn a little bit more about you and your work. Sure. Uh, In Pursuit of Paul is a seven-part documentary travelogue, you might like, series um, that's available on YouTube. Uh and uh, traces um, Paul's life and ministry, uh, and also my journey with Paul, if you like. Um, and there's a second that follows called In Pursuit of Peter, which does the same thing for the Apostle Peter. Um, we did film one called In Pursuit of John, but that has not yet been released. Um, so I hope that will be released in the next uh, year or so. Um, but all of these things and my uh, books or whatever can be found on my website, which is uh, constantinecampbell.info. Okay, very good. Well, I hope lots of listeners will get a hold of that and certainly get a hold of this latest book and dive into it and talk about it with your friends in your Bible study group or others in your church, Jesus v. Evangelicals, Constantine R. Campbell, 2023 by Zondervan. Con, thanks so much for spending time with us. It's been a real treat to uh, meet you and interact with you. Thanks, Don. Likewise. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Lord bless you and all that you're doing. Take care. Friends, this is Engage360 from Denver Seminary, and we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. And as always, I want to remind you to visit our website, denverseminary.edu, for lots of good resources. 
and you can get uh, full transcripts of all of our interviews uh, on the website if you just look up Engage 360 and that'll take you to uh, our website's version or delivery modalities of the interviews and you can download transcripts from there but wherever and however you listen to us we would love it if you'd give us a rating or review if these interviews have been of any benefit to you hope you'll tell your friends as well so thanks for spending some time with us thanks again to dr con campbell and we will talk to you again very soon take care